Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. This is Cassidy Zachary, fashion historian, and your only host for today's episode as my co-host April Callahan is on a break. So today's guest is Liz Goldwyn. And if that name sounds familiar to all you Hollywood film buffs, it's because Liz is actually Hollywood royalty. Her grandfather was Samuel Goldwyn. But Liz is so much more than the relation of a Hollywood pioneer. She has made quite the name for herself as an author, filmmaker, vintage collector, and fellow podcaster. She is the founder of The Sex Ed, an educational platform and podcast dedicated to sex, health, and consciousness in the digital age. She is also the writer and director of the 2005 HBO documentary, Pretty Things, and the following book of the same name, Pretty Things, The Last Generation of American Burlesque Queens. And that just happens to be the topic of today's episode, which is part one of a two-part conversation with Liz. Liz dedicated eight years to documenting the incredible stories of these trailblazing women from the mid-century golden age of American burlesque, many of whom she formed intimate relationships with, and this just enhances her work in so many meaningful ways. I cannot say enough wonderful things about this book and Liz's work. This book not only documents these women's experiences, but Liz does an incredible job contextualizing their lives and legacies within the larger history of the art form of burlesque. Liz also introduces us to many of the designers behind their stage costumes, all of which we will discuss today. You're not going to want to miss today's conversation. Because while today burlesque is an enjoyed performance art around the world, this was not largely the case at even just 20 years ago at the dawn of the 21st century. Liz's work has been instrumental in promoting that change. And this is something we are, of course, going to be talking more about today in today's conversation on this fascinating subject, which while being about the history of burlesque, is also a story about women empowerment and sexual liberty and liberation. Liz, welcome to Dress. It's such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed reading your book, by the way. I couldn't get my hands on the documentary or I would have watched it too. But this book is incredibly well-researched. It's it's revelatory too that you wrote it. I believe it was published in 2006. Today, I'm very familiar with burlesque. I think burlesque is a very acknowledged art form. At the time you were doing this, not so much, you know, and you talk about that. Not at all. This was pre-Pussycat Dolls. They actually used my my book um, and my research in that Christina Aguilera share movie, Burlesque. Like there's a scene where she transforms into a burlesque queen and she's reading my book. Yes, I got a lot of pushback, make, uh, especially when I was making the film because the film came out, HBO had the license 2005 to 2007 or eight. So I got so much push. I, and I started that when I was a teenager, that, that research work. I started that when I was like 17, 18, that research work. I got so many people telling me, why do you care about old strippers? And, and the women themselves were really, um, they were, took a long time to gain their trust and, and them to want to participate because society had really condemned them at the time. For being strippers and this was way before there was a revival at the time there was i don't know if you've ever heard of suicide girls yes okay so there was a suicide girls was burgeoning and there was a burgeoning neo-burlesque movement 
but it was not mainstream at all. It was very underground. But there were, were like me, like, like me being at art school, looking, trying on, emulating these photos, looking at Betty Page pictures. There are a lot of other women that suddenly were like, well, our mothers fought for women's lib in the 70s. And so what now? Are we supposed to deny our sexuality? Like, is, is being an independent, confident, successful woman mean that we're not supposed to be sexual? So was that period in the, in the mid to, well, I guess it was like late 90s, that there were a lot of us thinking about these things and asking these questions and naturally looking back at these women who at the time were, you know, huge sex symbols. And then they sort of, when, when television and, you know, when television really came in and also, you know, the male comics in burlesque, they could go to movies or radio or, or TV, but the women had no, they had a cap on their career, you know, and the night when burlesque moved to nightclubs and then alcohol came in, it was like, you were sort of a fallen woman, basically. Right. Yeah. You couldn't go on. It's not like today where Cardi B can like, you can transition. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It was really, it was really like frowned upon. Yeah. And you absolutely address those questions about empowerment and sexuality in this book. I think obviously, ultimately, the answer is that, yes, you can be sexual and empowered in so many incredible and beautiful ways. I'm super excited to talk to you. I have a lot of questions, actually, about your research because it's groundbreaking. And it's also, as you said, emblematic of this time in the 90s when being a burlesque dancer was still a dirty word. And your work really is instrumental in transforming that into what we know today. For our listeners who might not know, can you maybe just like tell us what burlesque is? Because I think maybe it can get compounded a lot with a lot of other performance art forms or reduced to just stripping when that's just one aspect of it. And then maybe just even give us a little intro into like the history of it in America, because that is so fascinating. Sure. So a lot of people, when they hear burlesque, the word today, they think of stripping, but that's actually not burlesque. You know, a good example of burlesque would be like Saturday Night Live or Shakespeare would be burlesque. It's a comedy. It, it comes from the Latin burlare. It's a laugh to make fun of. And it's a bit of like highbrow, lowbrow humor. So there were different entertainment forms in early 20th century. I mean, burlesque goes back further, but just to break it down for, you know, 20th century America, right? We think of like television, movies, radio. So back in the day, there were these two forms of theatrical entertainment called vaudeville and burlesque. And they were kind of like a variety show. Like even Z-Way, I don't know if you're familiar with Z-Way show on HBO. She's, mm-hmm. Anyway, there's a lot of shows now that follow this like variety show format that it would be burlesque. So there'd be comics, uh, there'd be skits, with like a comic, you know, show girls and, a bur- and the striptease number would be like maybe two, maybe three times a show. Cause it's kind of, it is actually really boring to just watch. It's, it's really boring, I, I think. And I love striptease to watch just like 90 minutes of right. stripping, you know? So it was, stripping was not, it was not the, the total focus, but it was more like in burlesque comedy, the jokes were dirtier. Whereas vaudeville was family entertainment. And imagine this is something that you would go into a theater, like a movie theater to see, or you go, you'd pay like whatever it was back then, 15 cents or something, or I don't even think it was, I mean, maybe a dollar or $3 when, you know, as we start to get early mid-century, 
but like a vaudeville show, you could take your whole family, a burlesque show, not so much there, you know, because (laughs) you could say hell and damn, and you could have, there were a lot of double entendres in burlesque comedy. Yeah. Referencing like body humor or like a fart joke would be more de rigueur in burlesque. But earlier than that, theater owners across the world, like in in France, in Europe, in Europe and America, realized that if you put women in tights or scantily clothed women, and if you use them to advertise your show, you need to get more people coming to the show. So, like um, pinups, what we think of pinups today, those we used to be there were tobacco card girls, and so those would be like actresses of the theater in the 19th century. And they'd have little like color stock cards sold in tobacco. So it was kind of like a marketing ploy at first by just dist- by theater distributors. They're like, Oh, the le- la- the least we dress the girls and advertise the show, even if the scantily dressed girls are only like 15% of the show, we're going to sell a lot more tickets. Right. So like the Ziegfeld Follies and stuff, right? It's kind of like a precursor, kind of those those early New York entrepreneurs, I guess, who are impresarios, excuse me, who recognized the power of a beautifully dressed woman and then transitioning into what would happen if, you know, you start kind of celebrating this artful nudity or the act of becoming nude, I guess, the performance of it. Yeah, so there was the Ziegfeld Follies. Florence Ziegfeld, there was Earl Carroll's Manatees. There were a lot of, you know, review shows, they called it, that had. But Ziegfeld Follies wasn't burlesque because the girls didn't take clothes off and there were a lot of rules. Like if they were, if they were wearing, sometimes often wearing less than they would be in burlesque, they weren't allowed to move. So it was like a mise-en-scene, like a living painting. So let's say they were like pretending to be a chandelier and like their brass, their, it was just, you know, sort of, crystal light bulbs, they were not allowed to move because that was considered vulgar. So what, if you were scantily clad and you moved your body, that was like, it was just such a fine line that separated what like was sort of high. So that would be, so Ziegfeld Follies would have been more highbrow at the time and burlesque would be lowbrow. I actually read, I mean, it's in the book, I think, but um, my grandfather and Florence Ziegfeld were good friends and they my grandfather did a version of he did the Goldwyn Follies, and actually Lucille Ball was or was a Follies girl, was a Goldwyn Follies girl back in the day. So Ziegfeld really popularized this idea of like a review of beauties, and there were the stage door Johnnies lining up, you know, backstage from like the big families of New York, like Rockefeller and Astor and Vanderbilt, to like give them jewelry, and and that's another tradition that goes way back too you know, in Paris, in, in, in La Belle Epoque, uh, where you'd have these like stars of the stage that were also betting the crowned heads of Europe. Yeah. And like getting gifts of corsets made of diamonds from Cartier. Yeah. The demi-mondaine. Yeah. <laughs> the famed courtesans. And imagine you're a woman born at that time. I mean, what are your choices? What are the jobs that are available to you? And by the way, you're not allowed to own property. And if you're married, you're your husband husband's property. And, you know, so you can see why it would be somewhat appealing. I mean, there is obviously like a lot of trauma and dark side to, to this industry, but in, you know, economically it's, it gives you some kind of freedom. 
Oh, absolutely. We've done an episode on Gabby Delee, for instance, who was one of those famed Parisian singer, demi-mondaine uh, women who really just carved a niche for herself as a independent and successful woman in like the 1910s when this just wasn't something you did. So these women are pioneering in so many ways. And I just love this book. It starts with this wonderful history that you've kind of given us an overview of, but you start in the Belle Epoque and you move into the 20th century and talk about the birth of burlesque and then you know it's it, a lot of it's a theatrical performance they're accompanied by a full orchestra they have the costumes can you talk a little bit about the red light that was kind of one of um the funner anecdotes in your book this kind of red light idea <laughs> yeah so there would be a red light that the performers could see from the stage at the back of the theater and when the red light was on it meant the cops were in and so you had to work really clean. And when the red light was off, you, you could push the boundaries. And one of my subjects, the late Zarita, who was amazing, who I was very close to, she was, she was really, really provocative. I mean, she was, out, she was publicly out, um, you know, in the 1930s, but stripping for men, but betting like, I mean, she had this book she would, uh, wouldn't show me on camera called her Dyke book. That was like incredible. She had these photo albums of all the women she betted. It was insane. It was just like hundreds and hundreds of photos of like women on fur rugs, women on the bed and and some very famous women in there too. (laughs) Um, But she would, in her words, she would flash her knish, you know, she would pull aside her merkin (laughs) when the cops were not in. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I, I mean, I was so lucky. Like, again, I think it was, it was a combination of me having this interest in sexuality and then being at Sotheby's and realizing that no one had ever done any work on this. And when I contacted museums worldwide, like, you know, the Met had like a couple of Airtay costumes and there was a museum in Amsterdam, but nobody had a collection. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, make this archive and like donate all of it. And, and you know what? It has been impossible to get a a museum show still in this day and age. Some major museums, like the directors of some major museums have uh, over the last 10 years have like wanted to do a show of the costumes that I have because I have all the archival material too, all the costumes and, you know, the sketches and the photographs. I've donated a lot of stuff to the New York Public Library um, because they have a great burlesque collection, but it gets to a certain point where like the museum director wants to do it. And then the board is like, well, can you show us some images where they're more covered up? I'm telling you, it's insane. So I have this big collection and it's just like holding on to it until I can really put it in the right place. But at, back then I was like, no, it, it, if the Met only has a couple air take costs, if these places only have a couple things and no one's deemed it worthy of study is never going to see the light of day. So, I mean, I literally through collecting these costumes, started writing to the women. And then because I knew everyone in that space, anytime something would come up, they'd call me and, and say, Liz, da, 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 da. so it was like one person led to another. And then I, I was just in an insane position of being able to first person collect these stories because the women were dying. I mean, you know, between when the hardcover of the book came out and even the movie came out and then the, the paperback. I had like a in memory of in the front of the book and I had to add, you know, so many more names like these, these women. And I, by the way, I got married very young. So I met my ex-husband when I was 18. So the whole time I'm working with these women who are in their eighties and nineties and they're kind of 
helping me discover my sexuality. I'm also like a a young married woman. It was just such an amazing, bizarre time. And I feel so privileged that they trusted me with their stories. And, you know, when the movie came out, it was just such a big deal for a lot of them, like to receive fan letters from not only people of their generation, but younger people, because they had sort of spent the last 50 years in obscurity and feeling like ashamed of their career. So it was, it was just a privilege to be able to like give them back. Yeah. Well, and thank goodness you did, because this was, like you said, you started your research when you were a teenager. This was almost 30 years ago now. And thank goodness you did. Thank goodness you tracked down these women and and talked to them and learned their stories. And now you've preserved their legacy in so many wonderful ways, um, including in this incredible book. I'd love if you could introduce us. You, you briefly mentioned Zarita, who is a firecracker, as you've alluded to. Can you introduce us to some of these incredible women? You obviously became close with many of them, especially Betty Rowland was someone you feature throughout the book. Can you kind of introduce us to them and talk to us a little bit about their legacy? Sure. Um, Betty Rowland, The Ball of Fire. That was a strange one because when I walked in, I didn't know any, I didn't actually know that my grandfather had made a movie called The Ball of Fire that was written by Billy Wilder, directed by Howard Hawks, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper. Barbara Stanwyck's one of my, she's like my, one of my favorite movie stars. She's just such, such a broad. And I didn't know that he had made a movie called The Ball of Fire. And when I walked into her house, she started telling me that I looked like my grandmother. And that she had sued my grandfather back in the day. <laughs> she started telling me this whole story about how he came to see her um, with Edith Head. He came to see her perform at the Orpheum Theater downtown, I believe, with Edith Head, the costume designer, and I think Howard Hawks, maybe Billy Wilder. And there are, there's pictures in the book of side-by-side comparisons of her costume and then Barbara Stanwyck's costume. Which is the cover of the, like, it's the movie poster, is this costume. And then you have a picture of Betty wearing the costume. It's like, you can't, there's no denying that it was a replica. Yeah, it was really, well, she kind of sued my grandfather for publicity purposes. Right. It was was sort of a, I've gone through his archive reading all the burlesque related material and it's super interesting. I think a lot of, I think there's a bunch of stuff in the book. Like, honestly, this is, This is like such an early book for me that I'm on my third that I'm like trying to remember exactly what's in there. But a lot of the big burlesque queens had written him telegrams and like wanted to get into movies like Lily St. Cyr and Sally Rand, who was famous for her fan dance. So it was sort of interesting, like go back and even my own family history and think that like this was a form of entertainment that was rejected back then by the mainstream and what they couldn't make it to Hollywood. And here I am, this granddaughter of this sort of Hollywood mogul at the time coming back and being like, oh no, but I, your story is valuable. Right. And fuck the censorship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about the costumes and the costume designers, because you also met some of the costume designers that are at least one of the costume designers who worked with burlesque dancers. Costuming was an art form. It was central to their performance as burlesque dancers. Rex Huntington was like the premier East Coast costumer. And he also made costumes for, for drag queens back then. And a lot of the burlesque queens would actually sell their costumes, you know, after they had sort of run through them to drag queens back then. So yes, there were drag queens. <laughs> this is not a new invention. 
they were very expensive and you were required to furnish your own. So in today's inflation, it would be like two to $3,000 per costume, which is a lot of money. And as a burlesque queen, you were responsible for, you know, creating your act. You have your own gimmick, something that made you unique, like Zarita stripped with two eight foot long boa constrictors, Oscar and Elmer. And she also originated the half man, half woman costume, which, you know, many of us have seen in different formats, including, I believe, on Emily in Paris. The new Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was a Zarita invention. And these were very provocative acts back in the day. So you had to have your own costumes, your own choreography, which you paid for. You paid the choreographer, you paid, you know, the musicians, everything to rehearse. So you're spending a lot of money and you had to have between like two and three costumes per season on the road. So you figure like once you add it all up, it's like 15 grand in today's money. They were making good money. They were making good money back then. Um, the only one who was able to really transition to other things was Gypsy Rose Lee because she wrote books. And she talked, she talked in her act. So it allowed people to see her as something more than just a body. But Rex Huntington was the premier East Coast costume designer. And Gussie Gross became the premier West Coast costume designer. And I was given Rex's archive by the person he left it to. And, you know, a lot of the queens that I interviewed had been his clients. I have all, all his like ledger books and measurements and, you know, all the accounting and sketches. And then Gussie Gross, I actually knew. And I got to spend a lot of time with her um, before she passed. She was amazing. And she paid for her house actually selling pasties. Uh, to, like a little line, <laughs> of, um, not made to order, but just, you know, like, like ready to wear. She made ready to wear pasties <laughs> for the pink pussycat in Los Angeles. They're really cute. They're like little pink felt with like a little pink pearl on the end of it. I have, she gave me, she gave me some of them. Yeah, I was going to say you have some in the book. <laughs> yeah. The Rita gave me um, a G string she made. That's so silly. That's like turquoise sparkly with googly eyes on it. Like she was hilarious. She always had like a <laughs> little funny touch, but yeah, Gussie Gross got into it because her first husband was a vice squad officer. And he was tired of raiding the theaters, uh, you know, because the girls weren't wearing proper attire. So he took her down and she started making costume for them. And then she expanded and she made wardrobe for like the policemen's wives. And, you know, I have a few things. I have a few like sort of uh, street wear ready to wear coats that she that she gave me that she had made in the 40s. They're really beautiful. But yeah, I was I was very lucky. And, And she also took Polaroid of all the, which are in, there's a lot of Polaroids in the book. She took Polaroids of her clients in each part of their costume. So some of the Polaroid series for one costume would have like 12 images. Like, cause as I said, they had a lot of layers to the costume. There would be, you know, outer gloves, inner gloves, three layers of bras, like so many, so many layers to these costumes. So it was really cool to be able to have access to that too, to have all the, the photographs and and, you know, she would tell me stories too about like, you know, the first breast surgeries that were happening back then, or, wow, you know, also a lot of stuff about the racial inequity in burlesque too, because it would be full white shows and full black shows like that. They'd have to switch over the performers and the audiences. And then you'd have women who were not white working as sort of exotics within a white show. So sort of playing up like a Latin character or an Asian character, but black women were, unless they were passing, were not allowed to perform in white burlesque shows. So 
literally through these costumes and through this microcosm, you get like a really interesting look at what's happening in America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just another wonderful testament to the power of dress and using clothing as a lens to get at these like deeper, broader stories and to meet these incredible pioneering women really who we would never have known about if it wasn't for you. I mean, perhaps someone would have uncovered it eventually, but they they wouldn't have had this like firsthand experience like you did actually getting to interview them and talk to them before they were gone. So I thank you for that because this book is just incredible. I can't say enough wonderful things about it. Thank you. And it means a lot. It really meant a lot when that book first started getting taught or used as like curriculum, not um, in, you know, not only women's studies, gender history, performing arts, but also, you know, when I started, because I had come from this costume background and the Sotheby's and these were not, this was not a area of costume that was taken seriously by museums, but then to have my colleagues in the field at museums internationally, like validate my work, that felt also so good. You know, like, yes, look at how intricate these costumes are. They are worthy of study. They are, you know, valuable for us to preserve. They're not just because someone took them off. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, they would always have a maid or someone waiting in the wings. Yeah. They wouldn't just like drop them on the floor. This was, this was yeah, as I said, they spent a lot of money on it. Because they were super expensive. Yeah, so expensive. And and a part an important part of their act. I love that you have like close-up pictures of some of your collection and you see the like hooks and eyes, the strategically placed hooks and eyes on their G-strings where it's kind of like, you know, this like you can unhook this part first before doing this. So it's like it's so integrated into their act in so many wonderful ways, which you also write about. Yeah, I actually had um, I've worked a lot in the fashion business, so I've been lucky to be around in that world for a long time too. And I had a number of fashion designer friends like make me burlesque costumes over the years and back then. But in the movie, uh, Costume National, which is a brand that's not around anymore, they made me a a burlesque costume for the finale number. And it was so funny working on that with them because there were all these things, they were like Velcro. And I was like, absolutely not. You cannot use Velcro. (laughs) You know, like there were all these things that they wanted to do or, you know, it's just the difference between when you're performing in something and how something has to move or fit or flow for performance versus for fashion, which is like, if you're going to do like a photograph, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. So it was, that was, that was interesting too, to have that lens of like thinking about how things are made for performing versus just um, looking cool. <laughs> You have this quote in your book from Gussie. It says, when burlesque went topless, I lost half of my business. When it went bottomless, it put me out of business. We kind of talked a little bit about it before, but can you kind of talk about the transition from burlesque being like this high performance art form and kind of what happened to it mid to late 20th century, ending up at the point where you would actually have to recover this legacy from history because its reputation had been so tarnished? Well, you know, basically, as we talked about, burlesque was a performance art, like, you know, like vaudeville. And it's, so there was an orchestra and it was in a theater and there was comics. It was a whole show. So the, the you know, it started to get expensive and less and less people were going to see burlesque shows or going to see vaudeville or going to the movies. They are, you know, it was pre-television, but it was kind of falling out of favor. And the male comics and the orchestras could get jobs doing a million other things and went on to become very famous, actually. 
there's one very, very famous comedian who actually tried to sue my publisher and made me remove all mentions of him from the book, who had grown up in burlesque, whose father was a famous burlesque comedian, because I had stories of him. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to get sued, but you can figure out who it is. And there are stories <laughs> of him like paying Zarita, for example, to recreate his childhood memories of he'd pay the burlesque queens to masturbate in a dark room while he would stand outside watching because that was his thing as a kid was that he would stand in the wings watching the girls perform watching them take off their clothes so my point is that male comics and huge people came from burlesque like bob fossey came from burlesque um orson wells came from burlesque wc fields jerry lewis lots and lots of people they could go on to other things but the women were not allowed to so once we start to lose the orchestra and the nightclubs, and then it's just a bunch of striptease that can't sustain in the theater. So it moves to nightclubs. And when you have nightclubs, not only do you not have a separation between the performer and the audience, so you don't have that physical boundary, but you also have alcohol being introduced. And so a boundary that's already dismantled becomes even more blurred. And you have, you know, uh, customers trying to touch the women. And that was not done. That was not the thing, you know, back then. So it starts. So once nightclubs come in and once alcohol comes in, you can see like where it goes into contemporary stripping now. So it, it sort of happened. It happened gradually. And they even started to change the name like of burlesque, the way burlesque was spelled. And they, um, you know, and they would put a K at the end or burly Q. And then like Zarita actually opened a Zarita show bar in Miami that was like more kind of going into like topless era, but she was the MC and it was her, she owned it and she picked all the girls and everything. But yeah, it was very, very different, you know, than, than what it was back in the day when they were part of a show. Yeah. It kind of, I think you write about how it became, went from artful nudity to like instant gratification. Like the performance art of it was like completely taken away just for like this instant nakedness that defeats the entire purpose of what burlesque actually originally represented because <laughs> it's the art of an undress yeah because it's all about the tease and the seduction of look but don't touch and you know there's so many different other art forms that you know other performing art forms that get misinterpreted that have elements of like that of that too like geisha for example they have elaborately painted faces but the back side of their neck the nape of their neck is like a little bit of their natural skin so it's like eroticizing these small details and it's it isn't about seeing it all it's about i mean back in the day like a flash of ankle was considered incredibly erotic because you weren't, that was like, you weren't supposed to see that. Everything yeah. was all covered up. The Victorians like covered their table legs. You know, you always read about that because they didn't, they thought it was erotic. <laughs> yeah. And now it's, you know, now it's different. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I think we've got a real, we still have a lot of puritanical ideas about sexuality. Yeah. But yeah which you are actively working to change, um, I have to say. I have a couple more questions for you before I let you go. Um, one is just what have you seen in the last 20, or I guess it's been 15 or 16 years since your book came out. What have you seen in terms of the revival of burlesque or how the art forms kind of evolved over the last um, decade or so? Well, I mean, neo-burlesque became a big thing, like around, basically, uh, my friend Dita Von Tees was kind of starting out as a burlesque, a neo-burlesque 
Alaska stripper around the same time that I was beginning my research on the other side of things. And, and there were other people in her space back then, like the Velvet Hammer Girls, who she used to perform with back in the 90s. And by the time my, the movie came out on HBO, she was becoming more popular and the neo-burlesque thing became a resurgence for a while. And, and that was really popular. There were clubs in New York and LA that like you could go see modern burlesque shows at. I would say like in the last five years, there's been a little bit less of, less of that. You know, it's, it's now back to being very super a niche kind of thing where at one point it was pretty popular to go sort of reclaim this. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it become from like a dirty word to then have like the pussycat dolls come on and like completely bastardize what burlesque was and be like, you know, we're going to take, I mean, and me as a historian, I'm like, it's kind of like probably what you feel. And I feel this too, when people use the word couture incorrectly. Right. Like, <laughs> that is not burlesque. I'm like, that actually, there's only I'm like the last person to be accepted <laughs> into the Chambre Syndicale de la Mode in Paris was Christian Lacroix. So um yeah, so that's not burlesque. But yeah, I've definitely seen it become more. I mean, it's cool. It's cool to see a lot of young women not be ashamed to reclaim their sexuality and not be ashamed to take elements of the clothing and 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 reclaim it. So yeah, I've seen it go through. I've seen it go through a lot of changes. I've seen sex go through the way we talk about sex. We change a lot, and like you know, since I started in this space, because my my sec my last book, my second book was about um, sex work in LA in the 1890s, Sporting Guide, um, and I started that research when when I was finishing up Pretty Things because you know it's kind of the same. Like, what are our choices as women historically? What industries could we have worked in? And like, are, why are we going to doubly condemn women for often having to choose a career to put food on the table? And that concludes part one of our conversation with Liz about burlesque history, dress listeners, but not our conversation with Liz, who will be back Thursday to discuss her relationship and work with and in the vintage fashion scene, as well as her incredible vintage collection. We also talk about her work with her educational platform and podcast, The Sex Ed, because, you know, fashion and sexuality are, of course, not mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, intimately interwoven and interconnected. Dress listeners, be sure and check out Liz's book, Pretty Things, The Last Generation of American Burlesque Queens, and her podcast and educational platform, The Sex Ed, at thesexed.com, as well as her recently released book, Sex, Health, and Consciousness. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you celebrate the legacy of the last generation of American burlesque queens next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. That includes you, dress listeners. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.